This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Father Richard Raw, who is a Catholic priest in the Franciscan Order and is a globally recognized ecumenical teacher bearing witness to the universal awakening within Christian mysticism and the perennial tradition. Uh, Richard, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. I'm honored to be with you. Thank you for having me. Richard, and, I, and we, should, we should tell our listeners, uh, we were asked to call you Richard. We're not being overly <laughs> informal. <laughs> right. Correct. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, to, uh, many of our listeners probably know about you and your work, but for the sake of those who don't, um, you were a Franciscan uh, priest, well, have been a Franciscan priest uh, for much of your life. At a certain point, you started the Center for Action and Contemplation. Um, can you tell us what, how that began, what the origins of it were, and um, whether it sort of was part of a, a personal um, evolution for you? Sure, I'll give you a quick version. We turned 30 years old this fall, uh, and I came here 30 years ago after my first 15 years in Cincinnati. After I uh, uh, started seeing on the road in my conferences and travels that I, I met so many people who I were activists, engaged, involved in the various issues of our time, but again and again they seemed to be not happy, uh, too driven, sometimes even angry or negative, in favor of a good cause. And just seeing that conflict, I, I wanted to found a place where we could still encourage engagement with the suffering of the world, but uh, to help people do it from a more grounded, centered, spiritual place. And so the teaching of that became our contemplative agenda our contemplative uh, uh, teaching, and uh, it's uh, it's been a wonderful place to, to grow for thirty years because the students who came in many different forms, uh, and you, I know you know this, they taught me, uh, I think, just as much, if not more, mm. than I taught them. Uh, Richard, uh, I've always been uh, deeply impressed with the Franciscans I've met. And that is your order. And I, I've been to Assisi, where St. Francis is from. And I really oh, felt, have you? I, oh. I really felt like it was uh, almost like a pilgrimage. And I went into the hills where his monastery was. And I remember seeing a sign in Italian that said, Silence in the woods, silence in the forest. And it was a place that really, uh, th there was a real depth of feeling there. And I, I'm wondering, um, what was it that um, attracted you not only to the priesthood, but to be a Franciscan. Well, it's almost a romantic little story. Uh, as I uh, said to you before the call, I was raised in Kansas in a very conservative, pre-Vatican II kind of Catholicism. Uh, and somewhere around the age of 14, I read a, a very romantic life of St. Francis. And it just so happened that a few months later, to our parish came a lovely brown-robed friar and uh, gave me this address 
off in Cincinnati, and little did I think that that decision would so direct my whole life. It's a decision I've never regretted. Uh, Franciscan spirituality is often what we call an alternative orthodoxy, if that phrase doesn't sound too unusual. But the only way the big monolith of Roman Catholicism could survive in Western civilization, and of course we were the monopoly for the first 1,500 years, um, was it had to break into subsets. And those became the monasteries, the convents, the religious orders of the Church, where, in fact, we very often had a, a quite different emphasis. Like if you'd come into one of my Franciscan houses here or anywhere, we'd tend to have, you know, images of Francis or Claire, much more than the Pope. Mm-hmm. Now that might change now with Pope Francis, but but <laughs> yeah. up, up to now we weren't we weren't big, uh, you know, uh, flag wavers for the papacy. Not that we fought it; we just emphasized very different things, and that was true of many of the religious orders: the, the Dominicans, the Jesuits, the Sisters of Charity. We all had our own spirituality. How interesting. Um, at the Center for Action and Contemplation, there's there's a, a kind of a twin uh, limbs, the action and contemplation. If yes. you could take them in, in uh, reverse order, uh, I'm curious about the methods of contemplation you use and whether it's safe to assume that in in all the work you've do, you've been doing and uh, your work has become so uh, popular, um, is is it um, a kind of uh, democratization of methods that were used in the in the monastic orders and now being made available for uh, the general public. Wow, I've never had anyone put it so directly. But it, and no, but in some ways, you're you're right on. Uh, see what happened, and uh, again, an oversimplified history. But uh, once. We got into what I call the food fights of the Reformation in the 16th century. Dualistic thinking, either totally right or totally wrong, pretty much took over Western Christianity. And once you're uh, oppositional, accusatory, uh, you need to prove that you're right and another group is wrong, that's the death of the contemplative mind. Mm. Uh, then, following on the heels of the Reformation, and I'm not speaking as a Catholic against the Reformation. I think it had to happen. It was good that it happened. But uh, upon the heels of it came what we call the Enlightenment, which is such a strange term. They (laughs) stole that from us, you know, from all of us in Eastern and Western religion. We were the ones who talked about Enlightenment. And they took that beautiful term and applied it to what we now see as rationalism. to call that enlightenment was very much a narrowing of the bandwidth of intelligence and knowing and accessing reality. So uh, we lost the older contemplative tradition, which was much more common in the first thousand years, 1300 years of Christianity. But uh, what we're doing is bringing those back uh, so Christians don't have to feel that they have to leave their native religion 
to be contemplatives. In fact, mm-hmm. we had it very, very strongly. But uh, this is why I think so many of us have been respectful of of the other world religions, is we recognize some, uh, like Hinduism and Buddhism, often taught it more directly in our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and without, uh, you know, all the window dressing that we put around it, <laughs> they got right to the, the uh, epistemology of how the mind works and how the mind divides and separates reality. So uh, in teaching the Christian mystics, we, uh, of course, find ourselves finding the immense similarities between Sufi mystics and Jewish mystics and, and uh, Buddhist and Hindu holy men and women. So it's, it's exciting. And if I can follow up on that, because you, you brought in the question of other uh, traditions, in the uh, description of uh, your work on, on your website, you mentioned um, that uh, it says you're bearing witness to the universal awakening within Christian mysticism and the perennial tradition. So yeah. I was going to ask you what you mean by perennialism, and uh, I, which is a term I think will be familiar to some of our listeners. Yes, you know, it's, it's come in and out of favor. Uh, Alan Watts had a wonderful definition. The German philosopher Leipzig had one. Uh, it's, it's referring to this pattern of truth that keeps emerging continually in in different eras, in different religions, with different vocabulary, with different symbol systems, but again and again talking about uh, an, an innate symmetry between the divine and the human, between the soul and God. And that, uh, I mean, every mystic in the universe is, <laughs> in, in their own language, talking about that. And for any of us to think we have a monopoly on it, you know, that we're the first ones to say, as Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's perennial tradition. That's universal wisdom. Now, it's fine if we quote Jesus, who's a, a supreme representative of the perennial tradition, but uh, to think, you know, well, here's the way I usually say it. If it's true, it's got to be true everywhere. There can't be <laughs> such a thing as Hindu truth or Catholic truth or Buddhist truth. Uh, if it's true, it's true. And, and what we're all finding is our own language approaching or accessing that truth. Right. And we're just living in a wonderful time where that's so much more possible. You know, a few weeks ago I spoke to a few executives and staff at Google and uh, you know Google has has made it uh, very hard to remain ignorant. <laughs> when I when I was growing up in Kansas of all places, uh, it was easy to remain ignorant. I had never met I'd never even met a Jew, <laughs> and I went to I went to Catholic schools, so I didn't even have to meet that many Protestants. Uh, so I could imagine all kind of terrible things about them because I knew nothing about them. That's not possible anymore. Yeah. You're not in Kansas anymore. I used to look forward to reading an encyclopedia. Now I can just get anything on Google. 
Richard, I wanted yeah. to ask you, uh, somebody, somebody's listening to uh, us interviewing you now, and they're Catholic, they're Protestant, they're what, uh, Jewish, whatever they are, and they, they hear us talking about uh, a mystical experience, a mystical side to, to Catholicism, to Judaism, to Hinduism, and they're thinking to themselves, how, how do I have that mystical experience? Where do I go? So if somebody comes to you and would ask you, how do I get on this mystical path, or how do I have that uh, integrated into my life somehow? I have no understanding of what that experience is and how to get there. What would be a first step you would give them? Okay, uh, let me say two things. First of all, to demystify the word mystical, uh, uh, the way I use it, is simply experiential knowledge as opposed to mm -hmm. textbook knowledge or seminary-trained conclusions that you agree to because you read them in a book, but where you know something for yourself. So mystical knowing is first-hand knowing. Now, after saying that, this isn't going to sound very spiritual to a lot of people, but the primary obstacle to unitive consciousness, and that's mystical consciousness, where you see things in their wholeness, in their connectedness, in their relationality, not just stripped down and isolated by themselves, uh, is that the, the mind, it seems, and I don't know why God let this happen, but the mind, it seems, uh, at least the post-printing age mind, for sure, loves to read reality in terms of binaries, that it sees things either or. The function of words is to distinguish this from that. But after the printed word became our form of knowledge, we fell in love with words, which are inherently argumentative. So the mystical mind has to let you approach the moment non-dually, where I don't judge it up or down, in or out, for me or against me, black or white, gay or straight, American or non-American, or I guess I need to say Republican or Democrat, <laughs> where, <laughs> where you find those categories just after a while not helpful at all in terms of accessing truth or accessing the fullness of the moment. So until you can move beyond dualistic thinking, dividing the field of the moment into what you like and what you don't like, and let the whole moment come at you, a good and bad alike, as Jesus says in several places, uh, I don't think you will ever have a mystical moment. Right. Now sometimes God uh, makes those moments possible, by great love and great suffering. In the middle of great love and great suffering, very often people let down temporarily their dualistic mind, and it happens to them. Right. Or if when they're just, unguarded. Yeah, if I could just follow That's up, all. Richard, but somebody, again, hears that, they can say, that sounds good, it's very theoretical. Uh, how do I practically begin seeing the world or, or, or behaving in that way? Is there uh, a meditation? Is there a contemplation? Is there something I do that gets my mind more in that direction. You know, my word for spiritual practice, and so, so many of us are using the word practice today, is rewiring. That it's, it's, it doesn't really say that much when you believe something. 
because you normally believe it inside of your old software or old hardware, and so nothing really changes. What practice is is some form of meditation, contemplation, uh, great love or great suffering, where you stay inside of that consciousness and you learn how to stay inside of it Mm-hmm. and to recognize the obstacles to it. that Every time a negative, hateful, resentful thought, for example, comes up, you say, my gosh, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. I, I think negatively every 30 seconds, you know, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And that's what we mean by practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to practice till your whole life becomes a practice, where it comes naturally, where you've achieved the rewiring on on your website there's uh, a sentence that uh, um, struck me it says true religion leads us to an experience of our true self and and true and self are capitalized yes <clears throat> much as they are in translations of the upanishads and or self is often capitalized um, and and then you add and undermines my false self. Can you, you talk about that? Because this is not what we think of as Christian language. You know, uh, the, those specific terms, true self and false self, were first suggested by Thomas Merton uh, in the 1960s, uh, one of our truly great enlightened mm-hmm. Catholics. And uh, he said, we're, we're all familiar in all four Gospels Jesus says, uh, you must lose yourself to find yourself. And I I think it's a throwaway line for a lot of Christians, Mm. because with their dualistic mind, they just don't know how to understand that. So what they did, unfortunately, was they concluded that the self we had to lose was the bodily self, the sexual self, the Uh, emotional mm -hmm. self. And, And body became bad for... I would say nine out of ten Christians, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. It was a false dualism, because as I'm sure you know, just repressing the body does not make the spirit wonderfully arise. (laughs) So Merton said, let's clarify what I'm convinced Jesus is talking about. There's a self that is objectively, ontologically, metaphysically, theologically, from the moment of your conception, who you are, created in God and from God. That's what we call the true self, and that's why I capitalize it in most of my books. Um, So the false self, in contradistinction, would be uh, your psychologically, culturally concocted identity. Now, by the way, you have to do that. The false self is not bad. It's just not anchored. It's just not permanent. It's just not real or lasting. And we all see this as we go through our many personas and and self-images as we proceed through life. They come and go and come and go every few years. So um, that's what has to die. And it's not something you punish or hate. You just learn to recognize, and here is where Buddhism has been very helpful. Mm -hmm. You just learn to recognize the ephemeral, empty, that's a word they often use, empty nature of it. 
But my gosh, I go back, our Catholic mystics are saying that uh, in the whole first 1,300 years of Christianity. It's, it's normative, you know, mm. that all of this identity that we create is ephemeral and passing away. Now, uh, Richard, where does, you're a Christian, you're, you're a Catholic, uh, where does Christ fit into this? Where does Christ consciousness or Jesus, where, where does, once one establishes the real self, one, once one goes beyond the created self, where does uh, the Christ come sure. into it? Well, that's going to be my next book. I just finished <laughs> the one on the Trinity. We've got to reestablish, if Christianity is going to have any solid validity in, in evolving civilization. It has to get the shape of God right. And what the Trinitarian doctrine said is God is relationship itself, and a relationship of infinite outpouring love between three. Now, we just shelved that as a mathematical conundrum, and we pushed Jesus, I'm getting to try to answer your good question, we pushed Jesus back on the throne, and uh, really overplayed the Jesus card. I don't mean that in any disrespect to Jesus, but we did. Uh, it's, it's, so when you ask me what's the meaning of the Christ, in Trinitarian theology, which I believe is ultimate Orthodox Christian theology, the Trinity is God. It's, it's strictly theologically incorrect to say Jesus is God. And that's what we've divided and thought about so much, trying to prove Jesus is God. We pulled him outside of the relationship. But here's what, why, for me, Jesus is so good and so important. What Jesus does is make the unmanifest manifest, makes the invisible visible, uh, makes the spiritual material. That's the Christ metaphor. And we, our word for that is incarnation. I believe incarnation is the trump card of authentic Christianity. Uh, secondarily would be Jesus' whole dealing with suffering. And that's the message of the cross, of course. The necessity of, of suffering to, to undergo the full transformative process. So... Uh, I would still be, in that sense, a very orthodox Christian, mm -hmm. especially building on incarnation and the cross. Those are the two front and center doctrines that I think make Christianity a bit unique. Uh, I'm not saying better. I'm not saying exclusive. I'm saying they, they don't let us, although many Christians have, uh, run around the mystery of incarnation, or avoid necessary suffering. Mm -hmm. um, your latest book is called The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. Um, do you have, since, since you, <laughs> you depart from uh, uh, orthodoxy in many ways, is your understanding uh, and portrayal of the Trinity uh, different from what somebody might hear on a given Sunday morning in a, in a church? You know, uh, of course, I would be prepared, I hope this doesn't sound defensive, I don't think it is, to, to 
assert that I'm completely orthodox, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But you are right. Because the typical Christian has simply shelved the doctrine of the Trinity, Karl Rahner said, the German Jesuit who was at Vatican II, he said, we could drop the doctrine of the Trinity tomorrow, the central orthodoxy of Christianity, and 98% of Christian practice would remain untouched and unchanged. So you're, you're probably right in the way you ask the question, that the typical Sunday go-to-meeting Catholic or Protestant who's just not really reflected on the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity, if they would open the divine dance, it would probably sound unorthodox to them. But I don't think it is. Mm. (laughs) And I think that's why, if I can say so, it's receiving such a strong response. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in England, it was number one last week. And, you know, the English don't read books uh, (laughs) that that unless they know it's somehow to be taken seriously. That's not because of me. That's because we're getting back to true orthodoxy. And and can you explain what you mean or how you define Trinity in in that concept? That let's let's say this. In the beginning is the relationship. In other words, God is not a whimsical old man sitting on a throne. You know the Latin word for God is Deus which is just Zeus. It's the same word. Hmm. We, we basically, uh, on an operative level, largely have a pagan notion of God. Hmm. As a male, who's usually an old man with a white beard, uh, upset much of the time, and, and very, distant from, and very <laughs> distant from creation. Now, what I'm saying is, this is God is not a being like that. God is being itself, and that's in Acts of the Apostles. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our very being. Uh, So if the nature of being is Trinitarian flow, love between three, God as absolute friendship, God as absolute relationality, God as absolute communion, suddenly we have a very safe universe. Mm -hmm. And of course we see this mirrored in all growing things, this vitality that comes from inside photosynthesis in the plants, uh, soul, I believe, in the animals. Uh, It's it's everywhere, this this, uh, elan vital toward life, toward regeneration, toward springtime. Uh, this isn't a notion of God that anybody needs to fight or resent Mm -hmm. or, you know, it doesn't create any kind of competitive or exclusionary religion, Mm -hmm. which is what we have so much of in the world right now. Uh, But a Trinitarian image of God rebuilds Christianity from the bottom up Mm -hmm. and makes it possible for us to not just respect, but uh, deeply honor the the vocabulary, the symbol system, the practices of the other world religions. Because we're all, I always say, we're all just children playing in a sandbox, uh, Mm. trying to 
create our our image of God. Dennis, can I ask a follow-up? Yeah, go ahead. Um, how, Richard, <laughs> does the uh, concept of Godhead fit into that? I know that's mm-hmm. a term that's been used uh, in Christian mystical thought, Meister Eckhart and others. Uh, how does that fit? Yeah, well, uh, it all, of course, depends on how we would each define the term Godhead. Mm-hmm. But it does tend to communicate the notion of God as a substance, as an object of our veneration, our worship. Uh, in other words, the, the, if, you're, if you've read the book, I, of course, compare it to the very notion of the atom, the building block, uh, with the three major particles orbiting around one another. Mm-hmm. And I try to say what apparently the atomic physicists are telling us, that the energy in an atom is not in the particles, but it's in the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying here, that it's the relationship that God creates between things which reveals God. <laughs> So it, it, you can only relate to God subject to subject. You cannot objectify God. If you try to make God into any kind of object that you can control, explain, understand, use, manipulate, you know it's not God. God will only be known, as St. John of the Cross says, uh, through love, through, through uh, mutual giving and receiving. Mm. So I know that takes a huge switching of the normal way we think about God. And it's probably going to take us 100 years to, uh, again, take the doctrine of the Trinity seriously. Because basically it's an absolutely different paradigm for most Christians, Mm -hmm. even though it's the most orthodox paradigm going back to the scriptures and the second and third centuries Mm -hmm. of Christianity. Richard, I have uh, one last question from my side for you, and that is, uh, aside from being a deeply spiritual person, priest, uh, you are a social activist, and I read that in, I was very impressed, I read in 2000, 17 years, 16 years ago, uh, you publicly endorsed Soul Force, an initiative to use relentless, nonviolent resistance to encourage Christian groups to accept homosexual people. Talk to us about that. Yeah, isn't it amazing how it has happened? I was just talking to a friend yesterday that, my goodness, almost overnight, we tipped the balance and people came to recognize that homosexual people are also children of God. What else could they be? But uh, when we first said things like that 16, 17 years ago, it was considered really edgy Mm -hmm. and... uh, unorthodox and dangerous uh you know i find very very uh moderate moralists and theologians who one by one are coming to the same conclusion if god created it uh then it is good and it's our eyes that are not able to see that goodness so um yeah i'm sure glad i i did sign on at that early stage, uh, because we, we just don't have time for this anymore. For, for defining religion as againstness, mm. 
mm-hmm. or exclusion. <clears throat> you know, exclusionary religion is going to destroy the world. <laughs> and and you would think Christians who say they're committed to love the inclusive love of the Trinity or Jesus, you'd think we'd be first in line. But we've been resistant, uh, you know, screaming all the way <laughs> to the finish line. Uh, because that's where tribal thinking is at. Mm-hmm. It wants to make its group the, the center of the world. And we don't have time for that anymore. It's not gospel. It's not God. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well put. Speaking of, of such things, uh, Richard, uh, the Center for Action and Contemplation, uh, can you speak a little more about the action piece of it and what kinds of action uh, the center is engaged with or if it's, if it's uh, in your training programs at the living school, um, there are certain forms of action or is it just preparation for individuals to take social action in whatever direction they, they're inclined? Good question. This has been a major dialogue every year of our 30-year history. Mm. Should we have a specific action that we as a center are committed to? And periodically, over the 30 years, going through a number of executive directors, we could have been a Native American center living here in New Mexico, uh, we could have been a gay rights center, a feminist center, an eco-spirituality center, uh, an anti-war center, all of which I believe in are implications of the gospel. But um, we always again and again said we did not want to commit the center as a center to one specific social agenda, but we wanted to support all people who came to us as interns or now students in the living school, in giving them a, a spirituality, a scripture understanding, a, a morality that would deeply validate them being engaged people. But no, we do not have one justice issue. I think we're very generous as a, a center to an awful lot of other centers, uh, because of my books, we've had the money to be able to do that. And the Franciscans have let the center uh, use all the royalties for my books mm-hmm. and CDs and so forth, which is very generous on their part, that they don't collect that. We're giving it back to uh, other groups that are doing similar work mm-hmm. as our own, but very often committed to a specific <laughs> justice issue like uh, poor Mexican women here on the border, you know, who are holding together sometimes the whole family by themselves. Just very concrete things like that. Richard, uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on, and I I hope we can have you on again sometime in the future. Uh, Many, many more questions for you. And uh, (laughs) Phil, if you want to mention the name of the book again. The new book. Yes, it's called The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. Uh, Our listeners can learn more about uh, Richard and the uh, work he does at CAC.org, which is the Center for Action and Contemplation. But we'll have all that up on the website. Is there any final words you'd like to offer our listeners, uh, Richard? 
You know, I've just found you so easy to talk to. You're obviously informed. (laughs) And you know, when you feel safe and appreciated by people, uh, it's so easy to talk. So you made it very easy. I hope I didn't overstate my case. Uh, But I get enthusiastic when I'm around other uh, life-affirming people. So thank you. Thank, thank you, thank and you I, very I, I, much. I feel we just started the discussion, and we look forward to talking to you more. Uh, thank you so God very, bless very you much. Both. God bless you. Thank you. Thank keep, you. Thank keep you up both. Good work. You keep up your good work. You. <laughs> okay. Thank you.